many writers do we have in here? Any, any writer? We got a writer here. I know that. Yeah. Poets. Yeah. Yeah. That's writing. Anybody ever experience writer's block? You know, it's where you you, you know what you want to do, but you just can't get started. And I mean, it's it's a real thing. Like you just have trouble figuring out where to begin. Or maybe you've had a big project in your life that you've looked at and you 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 know it needs to be done, but getting started just seems daunting. I mean, it's just like where where do I even begin? Anybody ever struggle with that? You know, I know uh, for for us a lot of times uh, when our, our children were younger, you know, we'd ask them to clean their room or something, and well, you know what that looks like. And they would look at it in just despair. And I'd say, well, just get started. And they're like, it's, it, look. And they, and they wouldn't know where to start because they were overwhelmed by the enormity of the job that was going to take them six minutes. And so what we did was, you know what, give me, give me ten good minutes of cleaning. Just start, give me ten minutes. And, you know, and, and many times, you ever notice kind of once you get started, things start happening. You know, it's like the, the snowball starts rolling and, and momentum starts to happen and things Things start moving. Well, we see that here in Nehemiah, in chapter 3. It's, it's time to get started on rebuilding this wall. And so there's a place where they've got to get started. And so we're going to look. Uh, we're not going to read all 1 through 32, uh, but we are going to look at verses 1 through 12 of Nehemiah chapter 3 at how and where they get started building because it, it's important. And so starting in verse 1, it says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Emery, built. The sons of Hassanoth built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Benah, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joiada, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besadiah, repaired the gate of Yeshanoth. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite. The men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Herahiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramoth, repaired opposite his house. 
and next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbaniah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath-Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Holahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. <laughs> you know, struggling through Hebrew in seminary has its benefits, <laughs> which was one of the hardest things I've ever learned in my life. So where we start here is that it is first things first. Where do they start building? Anybody notice? What did they start with? The gates. They started with the gates. Because believe it or not, when something like this is happening, you don't just randomly start. You've you got to start from somewhere that everything else will flow from. And the gates are what the wall is literally connected to. You don't just start building a wall out in the middle. You've got to start with what it's connected to and build out from it. And so what you see is that Nehemiah understands what needs to happen. And so they start building more than a wall. This wall is symbolic of restored life, strength, and identity. And so in rebuilding the wall, Nehemiah, Nehemiah was also asking them to rebuild their culture and their society which meant facing the hard truth about what got them to a destroyed wall and a city in the first place. You see, I believe that, you know, they've been 70 years now back in Jerusalem, and can you imagine walking around in that city and seeing the destruction around you and living around it? You know, here, here in Missouri, we know a thing or two about tornadoes, right? What if we didn't rebuild after that? We just left a mess. What if a tornado came through, ripped through, everything's there, and then you just leave it? And sure, maybe you rebuild your own house, but the destruction is just still for everybody to see everywhere. That's going to be depressing, isn't it? It's going to lead to a defeatist attitude. It's going to lead a person to accept that it's just bad. It's really bad. You know, in, in, in the mid-'90s, when New York City really conquered you know, their crime problem, one of the things that they had was what they called a, uh, they, they didn't allow a broken window to stay broken for, for very long. And so whenever graffiti or a broken window or something would happen, some kind of vandalism in a neighborhood, the city was quick to repair it like as quickly as they could because they, they found through studies that the longer things stay unrepaired like that, the lower the culture starts to go. And people who would not normally engage in criminal activity actually start to consider it. And so as they started to repair the city and they began to, to take care of the graffiti and make sure that it was gone, what happened is crime started to drop in the city very rapidly. Because we do become products of the culture that we live in. Whether we like it or not, we start to adopt what is around us. And so for 70 years... People have been born into this city of Jerusalem now where they have rebuilt the temple. And that's significant because we're going to see later they wanted Nehemiah to actually go hide in the temple, which is something sometimes we want to do when there's hard work to be done. We just kind of want to hide with God. But they had rebuilt the temple and then they stopped. 
And so it's like, yeah, we've got our temple, but then, you know, imagine going for a walk and just seeing this wall and this city just in ruins all around you. And it's never getting cleaned up. And now the weeds and everything are growing up around it, and it kind of becomes a permanent fixture. You ever seen that where something becomes a permanent fixture that shouldn't be a permanent fixture? And that's exactly what had happened. And so, in order to start rebuilding, they also had to clean out. And they had to start removing the things that, that, that was the rubble. They probably reused a lot of the rocks that, that were there, but they had to start the process. And to start the process, they began at the gates because the gates were the, the, the anchor point for the rest of the wall. They would set the beams in the ground, they would build around it, they would make it secure, and then they would connect the wall to it and start building out from it. Now, the reason we talk about this is because you've got all of this destruction and they didn't know where to start. When you start rebuilding in this manner, there are really kind of four steps that you've got to look at. There are four things that are always going to be necessary because you don't repair everything at once. Anybody in here ever do any, you know, renovations? You don't start at the end. You know, the, the end is the trim work and the paint and, and where it all really starts to look good. But you don't start there. If you start there, you're what? You're wasting your time. Because you're just going to mess it up again. You have to start in the right place. And so there has to be these four things. And this is when you're rebuilding anything in life, okay? This is anything. I want you to take note of these. Is one, you've got to have clarity. What are we doing? We've got to have clarity. What is it that we're building? What was it that he was building? Well, he was building a wall, but in all, he was rebuilding a culture. And he knew that. Remember the description that his brother had given him when, he came, when, when they came back to him. And he said, what's it like in Jerusalem? And he said, it's in great trouble and shame. The people that had grown up and lived in this destruction for 70 years, they didn't understand their own shame. They didn't understand their own trouble that they were in because they had accepted it as normal. And so Nehemiah had to go back in and encourage them and help them see the truth of the situation. And so there had to be clarity, and that's what he did. He gathered the priests around, he gathered the rulers and the nobles around, and he said, look... I've been given a vision from God to rebuild this, and we're going to have a vibrant city again, but we've got to rebuild the wall, and we've got to start with the gates. And they knew what they were building, and so what it says at the beginning, Eliashib, who? The high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. You see, it was everybody started to get involved in this. And we were talking about all the names, but there's a reason they give all those names is, you know, it wasn't Nehemiah out there by himself saying, you know what, I'll just join me and we'll get this done. It was everybody around started to get involved. And because it was clear, this is what we are doing, people got motivated and were able to be a part because they knew what needed to be done. Now, the second step is actual movement. And this is sometimes you ever get a great idea and not follow through? This is why movement is so important. You've got to see things happen. You've got to make things happen. You've got to take the first steps of fulfilling that vision that is given. 
And so when they start building in this way, when they start building these gates, they're not even close to done. They're building gates. And, and you know, picture it in your mind, this, this huge city, and now you've got a gate over here just freestanding with nothing around it. And you've got this gate standing over here with nothing around it. It looked kind of weird. It would look strange. It's going to be like, wow, we got gates and no walls. It'd be like setting the door to your house first and then building around it. But that's exactly what they had to do. And so the movement was necessary in that we can see that something is happening. But we can't get ahead of ourselves. You can't try to build the wall and the gates all at the same time. And then there has to be alignment. You know what alignment is? It's when all of the efforts work together. You know, what if you had all of these people decided they wanted to do it a different way? This guy wants to start building the wall right in the middle over here, and this guy's going to build a gate, and this guy wants to build this. Well, guess what? They're, it's not going to work. Resources, energy, there's going to be conflict between them. It, none of it is going to work if their efforts do not align for the purposes at hand. Now, anybody that's ever been a, uh, a contractor or in charge of a, a larger job understands what I'm saying here. You've got to get everybody on the same page so that the efforts are productive. And then we have to have focus. Now, focus is the fourth step, and we're not there yet in our story but focus is where we refuse to be distracted and taken away from the project at hand. Now, I know in this room nobody else has ever gotten distracted in the middle of a project, right? I'm the only one. You know, it took, it, it took I, I was talking to Carol earlier this morning. When I was working on my doctorate, I, got, I, I blew through the seminars like it was nothing. It took me four years to write my dissertation. You know why? I got distracted. <laughs> Had I been able to focus and, and, and just stayed in that same kind of mode that I was with the other, I'd have finished it a lot sooner, but I got very, very distracted. And when we get distracted in life, we all know it's really hard to reattain focus, isn't it? Like life just kind of starts coming at you from all different directions. And we, we will see throughout, and, and I bring these up now because throughout the rest of the story, you're going to see... Every one of these steps, not only on display, but all of them get challenged in some way or another as they continue. Because right now, in the story of Nehemiah, we're at the uh, everybody's excited, this is wonderful honeymoon phase of the project. You ever had a big project? You know what I'm talking about. Man, this is fun. This is exciting. Things are happening, and you see some movement, and it's great, and eventually life comes back into the picture and we realize wow this is going to take some hard work to get through but right now this is an amazing moment because everybody is involved you saw all the different names of people that were involved and, and it just continues to to press forward because we we learn here that it takes everyone it takes everyone to get this finished Okay, when, when I say building a city wall, don't think about like a fence around your house. Okay, we are talking miles and miles of a wall 
that is probably 20 feet high, built with rocks and wood and, and adobe and all that, I mean, put together and built up so that a person couldn't scale it if they were trying to attack the city. That it would be strong enough to stand up to uh, men with a battering ram hitting it and it wouldn't fall. And so this is no small task that we have here. This is something monumental. This is something worth doing. But this is something that takes skill and precision and time to accomplish. And so Nehemiah has this incredible list. And, and the rest of the chapter goes all the way through on this as well. Uh, okay, it, it, it just keeps naming names of people and, and next to him and next to him and next to him. The reason is he's showing how it's such a collective effort of people working together. But he starts his list with the high priest and the other priests. Now, why do you think that would be important? Because these were the most influential people in that culture. The high priest, they had, remember, they, they got there and they built the temple. They rebuilt the temple. Their religious life was back in order. Now it was time for the rest of life to start to flourish again. And so the priests in a sense, they kind of had what they wanted. Now, they got the temple. They had their building. They had their livelihood secured. And so they didn't, in a sense, have to really be gung-ho about this. And that's why Nehemiah goes to them first when he comes back. And he says, look, God has given this vision, and here's how he made it happen. And here are the letters from the king to prove it. Here's all the things God has done. And they said, yes, Let's do it. And Nehemiah starts by telling us that they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. Now what they're saying is this is the section of the wall and the gates that are closest to the temple. They're taking care of their own area. Now think about that. Why would you want to do what? You know, you start building. It's like, you know what? I want the wall to be really strong right here where I live. There's probably a pretty good reason for that. Because when an enemy would attack, what are they going to look for? The weak point in the wall. Do you want the enemy pouring in by your house? You see, they started building, but it started to be, become contagious with everybody else. And so the, the most important person in their culture was the high priest. And he was out doing the work with the other people, and he was even willing to follow the leadership of Nehemiah, who was not a priest. This is an incredible moment. This shows that, that God is in this because the high priest really didn't have to answer to anyone. He was, he, he was kind of the, the, the man in that culture in that time when they were the high priest. And yet Nehemiah shows up and says, let's do this. And he says, okay. And then Nehemiah tells him, you know, let's build the gates. Let's start this. He tells him the process, and he's willing to follow it. There's clarity in what he wants. And so he's willing to do that. They rebuilt the area next to it, and it says they consecrated it. Now, I love this. That means they dedicated it to God. They, they brought who they were to the work. 
these are the priests. What do they do? They offer sacrifices. They, they perform temple worship. They have spiritual duties on behalf of the people in that culture. That's what God had told them to do. And so as they're rebuilding this wall for the people, they're blessing it as they go. They are asking God for his blessings within it. They're bringing their personal skill set to the job. Now, I say that because when, as, as we continue to rebuild here at the church, each one of you that's involved will bring your personal skill set to what you do. And it's a blessing. We don't read that anybody else consecrated their section of the wall. Why? Because that's not what they did. But the priests did because this is, this is who they are. This is what they do, and, it, and it's worthy of being noted by Nehemiah in the way that he wrote this. But you know what else we see? And I love this. This is one of them that I love, is that even those who were not experts in building, in carpentry in this, well, in this manner, were out building and working. Who did we have? We, we had goldsmiths. We had Hananiah, who was a perfumer. You got to wonder, did you throw perfume on it as he was going? You know, his section of the wall smelled better than everyone else's was. But the perfumer was out there. We read at the, at the end of the section that I read in chapter 12 that uh, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half-district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. You see, everybody that could pick up a hammer, could have a trowel, could carry something, they were all involved in some way. And I said it last week, it is amazing what can be accomplished when we don't care who gets the credit. They had a vision from God and they just said, you know what, we're going to do it. And as the priests started working, I think as the priests started doing it, it kind of took everybody else and they're like, well, you know what, if they're going to get their hands dirty, I think we can too. And everybody just starts jumping in. And you read over and over that it's next to this person, next to this person, and it's the section in front of their house. You know, they start to realize the wall's going up, guys. This is going to happen. We're rebuilding. I better build my section. I have a section I'm responsible for. Everybody else is taking care of the area close to their house, close to where they live, close to the temple. I better take care of my section as well and yet nobody was tasked with doing the impossible do you notice that nobody was tasked with like you make sure this entire wall gets built and that the city is secure who who has that responsibility well in a sense nehemiah but you don't get the sense that anybody was like well that's their job except for one group and who was that? Nehemiah 3.5. It says, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Literally, I, I, the Hebrew in this is amazing. I don't do this a lot, but, but literally the Hebrew says, did not bring their necks in service of the Lord. They did not bring their necks in service of the Lord. Because any kind of work like this, when we have a vision from God, you're putting your neck out there, aren't you? As I said last week, there is no safe service to God. 
There is no service to God that, that is genuine, that is without some kind of risk. Even if you're a prayer warrior, you know the spiritual battles are coming. Amen? Our prayer warriors in here, you can, you can agree with that, right? You know when you start interceding for people and you start praying hard, you know Satan comes against you. There is no risk-free vision from God. And for whatever reason, we read that these nobles said would not put their necks out for God. They weren't willing to take the risk. We don't know if it was laziness. We don't know if they were afraid. Maybe they had a vested interest in things staying exactly how they were. Because, make no mistake, there were people who were benefiting from the shame and the destruction and the trouble that was in Jerusalem at this time. There are always people who will figure out a way to make a buck off of somebody else's misery. And as that wall starts to be built, they start to realize, I'm about to lose my livelihood. I'm about to lose my influence. I'm about to lose something that, that I have that's based on the suffering of others, and they're going to fight against it. Now, we don't know why these people chose not to, but they simply would not do this. And you see, the return of the exiles from Babylon at any time was bound to cause tensions. It was bound to cause people to, to start to question, what's going on? You know, we've been just fine here for 70 years, and now you want to come and, and mess all of this up and rebuild the city. Don't you know that the city's destroyed? It's over. It's over. Well, Nehemiah begged to differ. God gave him a vision, and he was going to go forward with it. And so one of the lessons that I want you to grab is that whatever the vision God gives you, there will always be the naysayers. Okay? They will always be in this world. That doesn't mean God didn't tell you to do what you're doing. There will always be those who refuse to join you in what God is doing. That's okay. Do it anyway. Do what God tells you to do because God will provide along the way. You see, it would have been great. They would have been blessed to be a part of this, these nobles who would not bring their neck to the work. But you know what happened without them? The work still got done. Because God's visions are going to come to pass because when God is in it, it will happen and nobody can stop it. Now that doesn't mean you won't face opposition, but that opposition will not be able to keep it from happening. And so you have, for whatever reason, Nehemiah wants us to see that there were people who just refused to get involved that would have benefited, that are going to benefit from the wall itself. And so last week we talked about humility and boldness. Humility says no job is too low. It says they wouldn't stoop to serve their Lord. They wouldn't, they wouldn't you know, that's not my kind of work. Well, humility, if we are humble before God, no job is too low for any of us. But boldness says we must do the work. And so humility and boldness should drive us to do whatever God calls us to do with no job being beneath us and every job being important. You know, this is a story, 
reminds me of the story of a guy named Dave. Dave got a job at a local restaurant as a teenager. His friends laughed at him and told him it was embarrassing to work at the restaurant, scrubbing floors, flipping burgers. In fact, they laughed at him and called him Hamburger Boy. But Dave didn't care. He made up his mind that he was not going to let what others thought of him be the thing that determined his destiny. So later on, he bought that restaurant and named it after his daughter, Wendy, and went on to be noted for his hard work and his MBA, which he said was an acronym for his mop bucket attitude. No job was beneath him, and all work was honorable as long as it didn't offend the laws of God or the laws of the land. How many of you have eaten at Wendy's? That was something that he stressed throughout his restaurants, that everybody who worked for him had to have a mop bucket attitude. No job is too small. All work is honorable. And in fulfilling a vision given by God, that kind of attitude is absolutely indispensable and necessary. We've got to work together. It takes everyone. And you see, this is how it works in the body of Christ. We build each other up. And it's, God intends it that way. He intends for your work as a member of the body of Christ to benefit another member of the body of Christ. It's not just about me and my relationship with God. It's about how my relationship with God affects other people. That's why he says, love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Everything God tells us to do is going to benefit somebody else in some way. Listen to Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. It says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, I love this, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. As I think about and I look at this verse, when a church doesn't grow for a long time, for a given time, and there, there are seasons, okay? I'm not saying every time, but when a church consistently does not grow, you know why it's not growing? Because each part is not functioning. Because when a church functions as God intended, it builds, I, I love, what does it say? It builds itself up. It builds itself. We don't just wait for God to just make things happen. We build ourselves. I build you up. You build me up. You build up your neighbor. We build each other up in love. And it says in, in Ephesians in that we rise up to become a holy temple unto the Lord. Isn't that a wonderful image? Build each other up in love and rise up to become a holy temple unto the Lord where God's presence is there, where God's presence is felt. See, when a church is healthy, people walk in and they get among the people and they know God is here. God is here. And they equally know when they go into a dead church and they say, God's not here. It's something that we know. And so, yes, within the body there are different functions. 
But there are those things within the body that every one of us, regardless of skill set, is called to do. Okay, just like the perfumers and the goldsmiths and the, the priests and the rulers were all out building gates and starting and helping get this thing going and all putting their back into it and working, so we as the body of Christ today all have jobs that we have to do for the church to function properly. And we have to have that clarity among ourselves to know what it is that we're supposed to be doing. Because we all work together for what? The good of the body. To build it up. To build God's kingdom. So all of us is called to discipleship and to help disciple others. That doesn't mean you have to be called to be an advanced theologian and, and, and have a seminary degree. That's not what that means. To disciple another person means you help them walk with Jesus. Who in here can do that? Everyone. Everybody in here can do something to help another person walk with Jesus. You can pray for them. You can love them and be a friend to them and, and be an example. You can help them through difficulty when they're there. Guess what? You don't need a seminary degree to do any of that. We are all called to do these kinds of things. And so in that moment of rebuilding in Nehemiah, we see priests, rulers, perfumers, skilled and unskilled labor alike working together to accomplish the goal. Isn't that amazing? And they're doing it with joy, and they're stepping forward, and it's happening. And trust me, it's happening fast. Things start happening because when God is in it and he blesses it, it happens. Have you ever wondered, I, I had, you know, as a pastor, I, I read different things, and sometimes you just read about, you know, these church plants, or something happens at a church, and, you know, suddenly they go in like a five-year period from like a hundred people to like a thousand, and you're like, what happened? Guess what? God was in it. Everybody was working. They're building each other up. Something was happening that God was blessing, and, and it's an amazing thing. Now, I'm not saying that we have to get to that point. I have no number in mind. I want us to be healthy and we'll be the size God wants us to be. But you know what the telltale signs of health will be? People will come to know Jesus. That will be used a lot. The baptistry will be used a lot when we are fully healthy. Why? Because all of you will be out telling people about Jesus. And to me, a healthy church has always been you can check with my wife. I've said this from day one. Day one that I went into ministry, a healthy church is a reproducing church. It is truly healthy when the people are leading other people to Christ. That's when we know that it is truly healthy, that you all are so committed to God's kingdom and what he wants that you're telling people about Jesus in your way. You may be a perfumer. You may be the goldsmith. You may be the priest. It, it, everybody will have their way of doing it. And it doesn't have to look like anything. It just has to be about Jesus and his kingdom. And so this isn't a one-size-fits-all evangelism course where you've got to go out knocking on so many doors. It's, you know what, you will use the gifts that God has given you, but you will use them. And that's when we know that we are healthy within this. And as it starts going, you know, as we talked about, we start to build momentum. There's something that we find in this that I love, and that is that enthusiasm is contagious. 
You ever been caught up in a moment like that with a group where everybody's excited? And you just, you decide, you know what, I'm going to be a part of this. And you go and you be a part. You know, one time in my life where I really did, and it was just fun. It was fun. I was in Oxford, England during the World Cup. Now, I don't personally watch a whole lot of soccer, but I thought, I'm in England. Soccer's the thing. It's the World Cup final. So I went and, and I watched it from a pub with all the other people there that are yelling and screaming and enjoying it. And then when, when Spain won the World Cup, all the people cheering for Spain took to the streets to celebrate. So did I. I'm dancing with people. Ole, ole. We, we were having a good time. You know, I didn't even care. But you know what? I was having fun. You know why? The enthusiasm was contagious. Everybody's celebrating. And you know what? It was one of those celebrations. It was truly just a celebration. Nothing was broken. Nobody got stupid. No vandalism, none of that, just people having fun. And, and I remember I was out there dancing with people, and we were having a good time. And I looked over, and some of the other guys that were with me at school at the time from the States were all standing over there like. And I'm like, come on. And they're like, no. And one guy's like, okay. And he runs out there, and we start dancing with everybody too. Enthusiasm is contagious. When we see God start to bless this place and it starts growing, I'm telling you, we're going to see it's going to become contagious. And people are going to be involved. And, and, and it's going to be a wonderful moment. Because this moment in time for Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem, man, that had to be exciting. You start to see these gates going up. You start to see this wall starting to take shape. You start to see the rubble and the debris being cleaned out. And it's nobody in particular is getting credit for it. Why? Because everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. Do you think it brought us? I bet, I bet Nehemiah cried over this. Because remember how sad he was in the king's presence when he found out they're in great trouble and shame. And the king says, this is just sadness of heart. I mean, it was affecting Nehemiah. Do you think when he saw everybody getting involved and, and the movement start to happen in the way this happened, I bet he cried. I bet he prayed and just said, God, thank you. And he was so excited about what was happening. And so I think about this wall. Many people repaired sections from all over it, but they were personally invested in it. Why? Because they're repairing the section right in front of their house. <laughs> And I think there's two reasons for that. You know, an enemy, as we said, would attack a weak spot in the wall. But two, there was a shared sense of identity and pride in what was happening. And I'm pretty sure I wouldn't want to be the loser that was like, no, I'm not doing it. You know, the wall's getting built. It's like this empty section right there by your house. You know, everybody's going to be like, um, what's up? You don't want to build the wall? <laughs> what's wrong with you? You know, and, that, and that's a good thing. Because it's that shared sense of identity and purpose that should spur us on. And in fact, listen to Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So I want to close with two questions for you. Metaphorically, here at the church, what section of wall are you prepared to work on or are you working on? What's your section of wall? Maybe you don't know, and that's okay right now. We're starting small groups. If you're not a part of a small group, be a part of a small group. That's help building the section of wall. It is. Because he said, don't neglect to meet together. But then also, how are you stirring up others to love and good works? This is a command in Scripture, and let us consider. That means put thought into it. That means be intentional. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Does your effort in this area get a good amount of your energy of how do I stir others up to love God and to serve Him? See, sometimes we get so caught up in what I'm trying to do with God and what what my relationship with God is, we forget that to serve God is to serve others. And if you really want to hear from God, we've got to be active in His service. And we've got to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. God, I thank you. Lord, that we get to be here at this place, at this time, to serve you. God, this is about your kingdom and only about your kingdom. So God, I pray that the first issue in our hearts and minds is that you would be glorified. That this wouldn't be about any one of us, but would be all about you. In your kingdom, your church, we're your body, you are the head, we are the body. And so, Father, I pray as we build this wall, as we rebuild the ministries of Grace Family and what you want, God, I pray that we would have that shared sense of identity and working on it together. That we would consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works. That we would support each other in our efforts, pray for each other. God, the Grace family would be a lighthouse of hope and good news and love in Pleasant Hill. God, that your message, your hope, your kingdom would go forth from here. And that, God, when somebody comes here, God, they would feel your presence, your love, your acceptance. God, we want to rebuild for you. Bless our efforts, God. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.